Did you know there are people who spend their lives generating awareness about climate change using photography? And if you've traveled all over the world and collected hundreds of thousands of photos, what secrets would you know about the environment? I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions podcast, where we highlight the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. Today, my guest is Ash Cooper, a photographer who has spent the last 16 years traveling to every continent on the planet, documenting the impacts of climate change and the rise of renewable energy. And he's the only living photographer to have done so. Ash won the climate change category of the 2010 Environmental Photographer of the Year. And he has a book called Images from a Warming Planet, which has 500, I imagine that was a difficult amount to pick, just 500 of the best photos he's taken from his epic 13 year journey across 33 countries. So we're gonna learn all about his uh, amazing journey and, and what he's seen and learned over the course of the last uh, 20 years of his career. Ash, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my great pleasure, Daniel. And where are you taking the call from? I'm based in Ambleside, which is in the Lake District National Park in Cumbria in the Northwest UK. It's a really beautiful place to be based. Supposedly, it's one of the most beautiful places in the UK, is what I've heard. It's stunning. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I hope to see it in the very near future. And today, uh, what I'd like to discuss, aside from the beauty of, of the Lake District, is really three things to, to kind of encapsulate everything. Number one is what you've seen in all of your travels around the world. And then I'd love to know what actually inspired you to take this journey. It's clearly you've done some pretty impressive things over your career as far as journeys go. And then finally, some advice for what we as individuals can do to reverse climate change and really to be environmentally friendly. So before we jump into all of that briefly, could you just describe who you are and, and the work that you do? Yeah. So my name is Ash Cooper. I'm an environmental photographer. Uh, I spent the last 14 years documenting climate change and the, uh, and the rise of renewable energy uh, on every continent. And that, that's my great passion. I'm, I like to communicate a, a message by strong visuals of how climate change is altering um, right around the planet. And, and also what we can do to, uh, to help alleviate the worst excesses of climate change. Well, yeah, this is going to be really interesting because I'm sure you've seen some pretty incredible things over the last 20 years that you've been doing this or so. So um, before we go into it, really, what was that moment when you decided, right, I'm going to commit myself to this and I'm going to travel all over the world documenting and portraying these strong visual uh, images? I've always been interested in the natural world and in the environment. And my photography, when I first started as a professional, was very much around the outdoors, landscapes, some environmental work, uh, outdoors. And around about the turn of the century, I started reading more about climate change. Mm. And it really interests me because my, my background, my degree is in, is in physical geography. Um, uh, so I've always had this interest in, in environmental uh, aspects. And when I started reading about climate change, I just thought, you know what, this is really interesting. But it was at a time when a lot of people hadn't heard about it. So I, it was also at a time when I was looking for a little bit more focus in my work. Mm. 
I thought, well, why don't I organize a, a specific photo shoot to look at some of the impacts of climate change? And so I spent about six months researching and planning a month-long photo shoot to Alaska. And I wanted to look at um, issues like glacial retreat, permafrost melt, uh, the march north of spruce bark beetles that are killing millions of acres of boreal forest that never used to be able to survive in Alaskan winter but, but now can, uh, increasing forest fires, all of those things. So I spent a month documenting that, um, the highlight of which was spending a week on a tiny little island, very remote, called Shishmaref. Um, it's in the Chukchi Sea between Alaska and Siberia, and it's home to 600 Inuits, and their houses were getting washed into the sea because the sea ice that used to form there around their island late September, even when I was there in 2004, it wasn't forming till maybe Christmas time. And if they had a bad storm came in before the sea ice locked their island up, it was just knocking huge chunks out of their island, causing massive coastal erosion and knocking the houses into the sea. So I returned having spent a month there, just blown away by how in your face the impacts of climate change were in the Arctic at a time when for the people I was talking to, both about my plans for the photo shoot before I, I left and about what I'd seen when I came back, I would say 50% of those people, their reaction was, sorry, climate change, what's that? Never heard of that. Hmm. Um, that would be impossible to have that conversation today, I'm guessing, because yeah. um, it's really gone up the agenda. But So I just thought this is really something that needs me to concentrate on it a bit more so i organized a, a second photo shoot the this time down to tuvalu in the south pacific to look at the impacts of sea level rise i was there for the highest tides of the year uh, and i was just horrified to see that on a flat calm sea the middle of the island was four feet underwater just with the height that the tides had got to and so similarly blown away by the impacts down there and i just thought I really, really need to concentrate on this. And fairly shortly afterwards, I, I came up with this plan of trying to maybe document the impacts of climate change on every continent. And it, it took me about 14 years to, to actually achieve that. Wow, that's uh, quite a journey. So those those two, uh, Alaska and Tuvalu, is really what got you uh, realizing what the impacts are and uh, the fact that Clearly, I mean, despite the fact that you, uh, it was so obvious to you and the people living there, it, it wasn't obvious to anyone else. They were both places that are pretty remote. And to this day, a lot of people have never heard of Tuvalu. It's the, mm. it's the smallest country in the world and probably the first country that will disappear entirely due to climate change. So it's, for the, you know, the places that are very much out of sight and out of mind for a lot of people. Uh, but for the people that live there, the impacts of climate change are very real and, and happening now and have been happening, you know, for, for, for quite a long time now. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges is, um, Really, I, I was having this conversation uh, last week um, about the importance of education. I think that's really ultimately what um, you know. There, there's there are a lot of things that we can do as individuals to be environmentally friendly and to make an impact. And I think one of the commonly overlooked ones is education, just because 
it's, I think it's easier to say, well, I'm doing, you know, I'm making this product or I'm, I'm creating this service in order to do that. And, and I think those are equally important. Um, education somehow gets lost because it's not quite as tangible. It's a little less, um, maybe, um, immediate. Uh, there's no product to sell as such. So somehow, um, and at the same time, I think it's, it's the most vital component because if people don't know, then people can't actually make any changes or, or act at all. And so, um, the, the photography you, you do, uh, cause I know that you won, uh, an award and, and you've, you've, what one of your photographs was used, um, on a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of publications around the world about the polar bear. So uh, speaking of the polar bear, what was this photo? Because it was, um, it's one of the, the most famous photos as far as, uh, uh, as far as climate change goes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I see my role as an educator, as a communicator. My job right. is to go out there, capture graphic images that show how climate change is impacting right around the world and get those out to the world's media so that people can see it, people can see what's happening. In terms of the polar bear, um, I'd taken a trip up to Svalbard in the, in the Arctic and we ha- came across a polar bear, a, a dead polar bear, and it was just basically a bag of skin and bones. And the most likely scenario uh, is that it probably died as a result of, of climate change. But why we can say that with a lot more confidence is that this particular polar bear had been collared by the Norwegian Polar Institute. And it had lived all its life on southern Svalbard doing what polar bears do, sitting out on the land during the summer fasting, waiting for the sea ice to form, going out once the sea ice had formed, hunting seals in the wintertime. The year in question when I was there, there was no sea ice at all around southern Svalbard. Uh, The institute had clocked this polar bear walking over 500 miles further north, presumably in an attempt to find some sea ice to hunt on. But even 500 miles further north, there was no sea ice. Um, so the most likely scenario is that this polar bear starved to death because there was no sea ice for it to hunt on. And essentially, you know, scientists agree that that is, that is the future for all polar bears in a warming world. Hmm. Um, their main diet is seals. They can only hunt seals on sea ice. And if there's no sea ice, there's nowhere for the polar bears to hunt. That shot was used on the front page of the Guardian newspaper as their lead story. And it was just literally picked up by uh, publications all around the world after that, um, basically because it was deemed to be the first time that a polar bear had been found that in all likelihood you could say, this is a bear that's died as a result of climate mm. change. What was the reaction that you saw, uh, especially being the photographer? Because I think there's it's very different reading about it than actually knowing your image is clearly uh, really touching people in a way that you know, it's a very intense emotion that they're saying. What was that like? I'm out of curiosity to be on that side where you realize actually people are are noticing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a mix of emotions, really. I mean, firstly, it's shocking to see, you know, a, a, an apex predator and a very large apex predator um, just reduced to a bag of skin and bones. Mm. I mean, that's obviously tragic. Um with any kind of photojournalism, if you kind of find what you're looking for, then that, that's kind of a buzz as well. So, you know, these, these events are often 
as exciting as they are tragic in some cases because you know I've done the research I'm going to places where this is what I know I want to document but there's no guarantee you're always going to find exactly what you're looking for so when you do find it um, you know it's always you know there's a kind of a bit of a high there as well to think well yeah this is what I've come for this is my job now I can get on and do it yeah um, so yeah a real mix of emotions really yeah I can I can appreciate that I mean if you're if you're really there to look for one thing and that one thing is something that's very very sad I suppose the the excitement at least the way I would see it is the excitement comes from the fact that you're now able to really demonstrate here is the the challenge and here's sure. the problem that we're we're looking to solve and it's it's plain and clear to see yeah yeah um you you also won an award for as i mentioned at the, at the very beginning about the um in the climate change category for the environmental photographer of the year back in yeah. 2010 what what was that that award for all right okay well it was just for a single image um i entered um the competition with a number of images in the climate change category and one of my images which was actually of a protester at uh, the wave which was the biggest climate change protest ever to take place in the uk something like fifty thousand people took to the streets wow. and i managed to get this really really graphic image of this woman screaming with her face painted it was all very dramatic and graphic and uh, and actually yeah that won one first prize which was great um as a photographer it's always nice to have your work um acknowledged and actually i went on from there a couple of years later and uh, for the last two or three years now i've also been one of the judges on the environmental photographer of the year competition as well so it's kind wow. of nice to have uh, progressed from kind of being one of the one of the people entering it to actually now the, the person that judges all, all the entries that come in from all around the world every year that's very cool you, you must see some pretty incredible works I see some amazing imagery. It's a, it's a real honour to do to do that job. Yeah, it's it's just getting to see amazing, fantastic imagery from all around the world yeah. by some very very talented photographers. Yeah, absolutely. So the the book that you have, um, images from a warming planet. So there somehow you had to pick from thirteen years of travelling over thirty three countries. You had to somehow pick five hundred of your favourite images. Um, yeah. So. How how long did the actual the whole process take? Because thirteen years was the traveling. I imagine there was yeah. much more time at the beginning and at, and at the end. Yeah. Uh, so what what was that actual process like? Okay, so it was thirteen years documenting. So out there taking the photographs on on every continent. Um, it, from fairly early days, I decided that I wanted to put five hundred of the best images into kind of a an art photographic book. Um, that would graphically demonstrate you know, how climate change is radically altering the planet, but also offering some solutions as well. Mm. So it took me about a year um, to actually edit the photos um, and to put the book together, because the book's actually self-published. Um, I raised £45,000 through crowdfunding to actually be able to self-publish the book. So it's about a year to do the crowdfunding and also to you know to write all the the copy that goes along with the book and working hand in hand with the designer um that was about a year uh, to put together but the whole book kind of tells a story so it starts off um and takes the, the the reader or the viewer um through the journey that i've been on which is to start with documenting what is causing climate change then moving on to 
So how is that impacting around the planet? So there are categories on all the different ways that climate change is impacting the planet, things like glacial retreat, permafrost melt, extreme weather, um, drought, all these other issues, forest fires. Um, and then it finishes um, on, on a bit more of a positive note, and it finishes on all the images that demonstrate what we can do to hopefully try and avert the worst excesses of climate change. And that is, you know, massive and rapid investment uh, in renewable technology. So I spent a lot of time looking at a, a lot of different um, renewable technologies all around the world. And some things that, you know, people probably would never even have dream of that are, are done by renewable energy. For instance, I documented uh, the world's first um, solar crematorium which I just think is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so at the end of the day, when you shuffle off this mortal coil, uh, you can do it in a solar crematorium in a completely carbon neutral way. Uh, this, is, this was in India. Um, this guy developed this. It's just basically a big metal box. You shove the body in and he, he made this huge, big um, mirror reflector, which reflects the sunlight onto the metal box. And it, it literally raises the temperature inside the box to burn a human body completely to ashes within four hours. Um, That's incredible. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> how, how do you, I mean, how did you find that specific thing? That's. I, I spend, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time doing research. So, I mean, some, sometimes you just happen across things and it's luck, but more often than not, I find things because I'm researching them. So before every photo shoot, I will spend months and months and months uh, looking at the place I want to go to, looking at the issues that are there, trying to connect in with scientists that are doing climate change research um, in those areas and really looking at how I can um, maximize my chances of coming away with, you know, the most um, varied set of climate change renewable imagery from any one particular photo shoot. So it's, a lot of it's down to the, the initial research. So if you're if you're doing months and months and months of research, how much how much time are you actually in your location? So, like for instance, when you went to India, did you do it by country or did you sort of say, here's the Asian continent? I'm going to do everything. It's, it's such a huge space. No, it's, it's it was one of photo shoots to different places over different periods of time. And, and those varied. If it was somewhere close to home, that might be I would just be a week somewhere. I mean, certainly in the UK, it might have just been a day or two documenting mm. local floods or something like that. Um, some of the uh, more remote places, I would be away for like five or six weeks. Uh, Antarctica, I was down there for about six weeks. Um, just because they're, you know, they're difficult, expensive places to get to. So you want to absolutely maximize, you know, your time down there and you want to maximize the amount of imagery that you can capture while you're there, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anything from a day long to six weeks kind of at a time, really. Wow. And so the, I mean, if you're doing this much, uh, if you're doing this much research and you're, you're so prepared, by the time you get there, it, do you feel like you're still surprised by the things you've seen or you're, you're so mentally ready for it that you're, when you see it, you said, okay, I'm, that's what I expected and you just take your photos? A little bit of both. Uh, the more research you do, uh, the more you know what to expect. But it's, you know, it's, it's, still, uh, it's still shocking. It's still hard hitting. It still impacts you and affects you because I've spent 13, 14 years going to the places where everything's going wrong. 
mm. where people's lives have suddenly been blown apart by a disastrous forest fire or disastrous floods or disastrous drought. Um, and people who have lost everything in those scenarios. So, you know, it always has a huge, you know, kind of emotional impact on you. And as much as you've researched what's going on out there, it's always shocking when you actually see it with your own eyes. And I, and I think the day that you stop being shocked by, by this horrific stuff that's going on all around the world is the day you should hang up your camera and kind of give up, really, because um, you need to have that emotional connection uh, with, with the work that, that you're doing. Um, you need to be impacted and shocked by, by these horrendous things that are happening right around the planet. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that's, it's true. I mean, it's, it's certainly a shame that, you know, there is so much shocking stuff going on everywhere to the point where, you know, you can travel everywhere and document it. What, what are some of the, like the most shocking things that, that you remember that stick out in your mind from all of the, from everything you've seen? Okay. Um, I learned really early on, I think that um, something that's really stayed with me and that is that those least responsible for climate change are most impacted by it. For instance, the Inuits on Shishmaref, the very first photo shoot I did, still live really closely to the land. I went out hunting caribou on the tundra with them, picking berries, um, fishing for salmon. So, you know, their carbon footprint compared to the average North American is tiny, and yet they are being massively impacted by climate change. Uh, I'll give you another example. I went to uh, Malawi. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. And I went to document uh, the aftermath of the worst floods that had ever hit Malawi. Now, around about, well, well over a thousand people um, died in these floods. Around about half a million people were displaced. These are people who um, are living on probably a couple of dollars a day. You know, they're really, really poor. And the floods just destroyed them because it washed their houses away. It washed their livestock away. It washed the very soil away on which they grew their subsistence crops um, to feed on. So these are people who had very little start, start with. Uh, and climate change just swiped everything that they ever had away from them, um, you know, in one massive flood. And to see people who uh, were pretty poverty stricken beforehand, but who are now, you know, literally traumatized by everything that they've lost is just really shocking to see. And also, it's not just the fact they've lost everything and they're having to deal with the, the trauma of that and the practicalities of that. Also, what I witnessed was that the rates of malaria had gone through the roof because Malawi sits pretty close to the equator. So it's in the tropics. Um, you've got flood water sat all over the floodplain. Once the flood water started receding and the sun gets to work, it starts evaporating those flood pools and they quickly turn stagnant, which is perfect breeding grounds for mosquitoes. So the population of mosquitoes exploded, which meant the rates of malaria exploded and I got flown in um, on a United Nations helicopter to a little village called Makanga that had been cut off for over a month by the floods and there was uh, doctors and nurses from MSF on, on the helicopter Medicine Sans Frontier 
And one of the things they were doing is treating the people that had been cut off, and, but they were also testing them for malaria. Now, the background uh, rate for malaria in, Mal in Malawi is something like 7 or 8% of the population will have it at any one time. 50% um, of the people in Makanga were positive for malaria. So these are people that lost everything. And they're also now having to try to deal with medical conditions on top of that, all of which have been brought about as a result of climate change. So when you witness things like that, you know, it's really, truly, truly shocking to see. I think I think you're absolutely right. And at the same time, you did mention that there are people that you've, you've seen and, and places you've visited that are doing something about it. I think um, yeah. a big part of, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, a big part of this podcast is to also highlight who I call sustainability champions. These are individuals that are, you know, taking matters into their own hands and uh, actually actively working to reverse climate change and, and protect and, and heal the planet. So what are some of the things that you've seen aside from uh, the solar powered crematorium in India um, that gives you hope? Yeah, I mean, the, I've seen some great projects right around the world. Um, and a lot of those have been around renewables. And the, I did a photo shoot uh, to India specifically for WWF mm. to look at some of the issues um, around renewable energy. And they've got some great projects there. So there's one project where down in the Sundarbans in the Ganges Delta, remote farming community, they've never had access to electricity. And WWF went in there, built this solar, um, all these solar panels large enough to be able to charge a solar battery um, for each family that lives there. So once a week, they take their solar battery to the panels, plug it in, charge it up, and that battery is big enough to, um, for them to charge their mobile phones, for them to have a light in their house, maybe even power a small TV. But these people before then are lighting their houses with kerosene lamps. Kerosene lamps are a disaster. Um, they're smelly, they're polluting, it's fossil fuel. Um, over a million women and children die around the world every year from inhaling kerosene fumes. They're horrendous things. And just by this simple technology, it means they can get rid of their kerosene lamps uh, and light their house with, you know, with a light bulb charged from their, their solar-powered battery. You know, how good is that? Yes, yeah, fantastic. Um, and then I went to places um, like the Barefoot College, the Barefoot College is an amazing charity. And what they do is they take um, disadvantaged women from communities all around the world and they teach them how to do one of two things. They teach them how to build either a solar lantern or a solar cooker. Mm. And in the terms of the solar cookers, you know, these are in poor communities where mainly women might be spending three or four hours a day going out into the bush, looking for wood, chopping trees down, which, you know, from a biodiversity point of view, from a climate change point of view, is a disaster. But they have to do that because they've no access to energy. So wood is the only fuel they have to cook their evening meal. Well, you teach them how to build a solar cooker, that frees up the four hours a day they were spending looking for wood. It keeps the trees intact. And that, that's training and education that they can cascade throughout their own communities. Um, 
There was a, an ashram that I visited in India, the Munisiva Ashram. They're 100% renewable. All their energy is from renewables. They invested in their first solar panels in 1986. Mm. You know, at that time, there was really only solar panels on satellites. Um, and they, you know, they deliver cradle-to-grave services. They have a specialist cancer hospital. They have an old folks home. They have schools. They have an orphanage. Um, they grow all their own organic food. They make their own biogas. Um, and it's just amazing to see what can be done when there is a will to do it. And, you know, these people have got a real light touch on the planet because they're powering their, their whole lives uh, with renewable technologies. I think that, I mean, those are some, those three examples are really cool. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about the, uh, the, the cookers, as you were saying that I, I was just remembering that, that there's, um, for a lot of companies who are interested in, in offsetting their carbon, you know, with carbon credits, one of the things that, that they buy, um, or can fund rather, are basically either, um, either gas or, or like renew, renewable energy cookers, because as you said, it's, the amount of trees that it saves is is incredible, and kerosene is just so uh, is just so um, harmful to everyone, regardless yeah. of how close you are. But that ashram sounds unbelievable. I mean, that's like a, a little community. And wh- where did you say it was? It was it was in uh, in India, in uh, West India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wow. just a hugely inspiring place. Hugely yeah. inspiring. Yeah. Do these do these kind of things? I mean, so you're, you're seeing kind of the best and the worst, I suppose. So do do these um, do these projects where people are clearly doing something and they're they're you know they're trying hard? Obviously, does it give you hope? Or would you say that you're overall hopeful and optimistic, or you're you're too concerned? Uh, it. Uh, some depends. Depends on the day. Depends how I get out of bed. Um, sometimes I feel really depressed about what I've seen. Sometimes I feel, you know, there, there's hope, and you know, we carry on doing what we're doing because we, ha- you know, we, without hope there is nothing. So we we have to hope that we can transition um, more rapidly than we are at the moment to a low carbon economy because that's the only way there is a you know a sustainable future for humanity on the planet. Um, and thankfully now renewables are way way cheaper than most fossil fuel well than all fossil fuels really um so it's a bit of a no-brainer um when renewables first came on the scene they were quite expensive but due to you know research development economies of scale the prices have really come down now so for for countries or companies to invest in renewables it's a no-brainer because it's you know it's cheaper than buying in the coal and the gas and that's even before you start factoring in, you know, the, the devastating costs and impacts of climate change that burning those fossil fuels entails. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, from, from what you've seen, I mean, you know, clearly people need to do something about the current situation and take action. And that's, you know, what you've been working so hard to to motivate people to do. I mean, what, what would you say, um, what can we do to motivate people, you know, whether they're listening to this podcast or, or, um, you know, how do I motivate my friends, for instance, who may not be as interested, you know, what advice would you give to get people to take action? Okay. First of all, you know, 
equip yourself with the facts, see what's going, you know, there, there is no shortage of information about how climate change is altering, you know, people's lives all around the planet. There is no shortage of information about, you know, the great strides that are being made by renewables. So, you know, read more, look at, look at more stuff, equate, you know, make, make, make yourself aware of what's going on out there. And once you are aware, you know, then most people actually want to take some action and we can all um, take some action some of the big decisions, you know, have to be left down to to governments and corporations, but we can all do things in our own lives. Um, so the real easy kind of low-hanging fruit, if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, stop flying to start with. And, you know, I'm going to stick my hand up at that point. I'm guilty. You know, I, I took a lot of flights documenting climate change around the world. So <laughs> my, my, my collection of climate change imagery has got quite a large carbon footprint. But, you know, that was the only way I could get to a lot of these remote places. So, but, you know, I haven't flown for maybe a couple of years now. So, you know, cut down on your flying or don't fly at all. Diet is hugely important. I'm not a vegetarian, um, but I eat very little meat and I don't really eat red meat. So if you cut out or reduce the amount of meat and dairy that you eat, that has a huge impact um, on your own carbon footprint. And just stop buying stuff because everything's got a carbon footprint. Uh, and the more stuff you buy, uh, the more embedded carbon there is in the, in the products that you're buying. So, you know, make do with less. And all the research shows that actually people aren't happier going out buying stuff. They're, you know, what makes people happy is access to the natural world, access to wildlife, friends, family, community, these are things that, you know, really are important for the mental health of human beings, not have I got the latest, you know, handbag, you know, designer handbag or the latest shiny motor car on, on my drive. You know, these are things that long term do not make people happy. And essentially, they're destroying the capacity of the planet to carry us humans forward. Um, so there's, you know, there's a million and one things that we can do. For most people, the largest part of their carbon footprint is in heating and powering their house. Mm. So, you know, it is really easy these days to buy, certainly in the UK, to buy your energy only from companies who source 100% of their energy from renewables. So you know that your money that you're spending on your electric bill is, you know, going to be invested in renewable energy. And that's, you know, these are really simple things that we can all do as consumers. Um, look at where your food's coming from. You know, buy more organic stuff, buy local stuff in season. And these are just really easy ways you can reduce your carbon footprint. If you've got a little bit of space, try growing some of your own food. Um, it tastes great uh, and it's zero carbon footprint. So, you know, there are so many different things that we can do as individuals to lower our own carbon footprints. Yeah, I think the uh, the the key takeaway that I'm hearing there is really do what you can where you are. You know, it doesn't. I don't think. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things I'm learning as well. Is you don't need to be perfect in order for this no. to work. Just a little bit um, goes surprisingly a long way because we're it's we're all in it together, and so it's yeah, a yeah. collective yeah. thing. So, um, and the and the other thing is lobby your politicians because mm. these people want to get reelected, and the more people that are onto them about why aren't you supporting renewable energy? Why, you know, why are you talking about 
airport expansion in the middle of a climate emergency. The more people that lobby their MPs, the more they're going to stand up and take notice and, and take the action that we all need to be taken. So that's really important as well. Yeah, and I think that that's also, it sounds um, uh, probably a lot scarier and, and difficult, more difficult than it is, but I mean, it, it really is just probably a short email will do the trick. Yeah, Because uh, if they sure. start seeing a lot of those, they'll, yeah. they'll know what, what that means and what they need to do. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I didn't mention, we were or asked rather, we've been um, talking about climate change in terms of what you've seen around the world. What about plastic? Is that something you've been documenting as well? I have, yeah. I've done quite a bit on documenting um, ocean plastics. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think was it 15 years time, they reckon there's going to be a greater weight of plastic in the sea than there is fish. Hmm. Um Anything you can do to avoid using plastic would be a great boon to the planet because, you know, plastic is getting everywhere. It's in, you know, the deepest oceans around Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, it's found in most organisms. Um, only last week I was reading that, you know, microplastics are now being found in human organs, for yeah, instance. I saw that too, yeah. Um, you know, and we don't actually know what the long-term impacts of some of this stuff is. So, yeah, it's one of the things that I've also documented. And have you seen it in places that you just could not believe that, you know, how did this, how did this plastic get here? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been down to Antarctica three times now and I've seen plastic in Antarctica, you know, you know, tens of thousands of miles away, well, thousands of miles away from, you know, the nearest source of where it could have come <laughs> from. Um, and I've seen beaches where, you know, you struggle to see a grain of sand for the, you know, the sea of plastic on top of it. Um, it is a, you know, a massive problem and a you know, hideous pollution caused by plastic. Yeah, because I mean, I've seen I've seen photos of it on you know social media, for instance, where it's like some remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that's just covered in plastic. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that you say that you've you've actually seen yourself. Yeah, yeah. And is it are the, pl the the things that you see there? Is it recognizable stuff? Like you're like, well, that's definitely a bottle, and that's definitely oh yeah, else. yeah, yeah. You you can walk along some of these beaches just picking brand name after brand name up on bottles. You know, wow. whether it be you know coke or pepsi or whatever it is you know it is you just see the stuff littering the beaches all over the place mm. um and yeah, it's so. very identifiable you know what it is that's incredible so uh, clearly there's a lot of work to do um and obviously there is um uh, it sounds like although there are uh, a lot of challenges there are people who are doing something about it what, what from your point of view what's next i mean now that you've traveled the world and you've been to basically every continent and you've documented everything what what do you see as is the next step in your education journey? Okay, well, I'm still out there. I'm still documenting, um, mainly just in the UK uh, at the moment. Um, but what I'm aiming to do next is, because I spent 13, 14 years documenting climate change around the planet. I put together the world's largest collection of climate change renewable imagery, but I'm one person. And, you know, there's a real limit to what one person can do. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the world now has got a, has got a camera on their mobile phones. So what I want to do is to launch a portal, an online portal, where people can upload their own climate imagery that they've taken that show the impacts of climate change in their own backyards. Because I just think from a scientific point of view, from an educational point of view, um, it'd be really, really important if over a period of time we can grow this collection online 
um, where people can go to and click on their country or their region and see what the impacts are and see what the imagery is there. So I'm trying to raise the funding at the moment to, to launch this, uh, it will be called I Commit, uh, and to get people to start loading their climate change imagery onto this so people can see you know, really what is happening right around the planet um, in a very visible way. Mm. Sounds like it's an organized way as well. That's uh, so you don't need to scroll and look, uh, yeah. you know, finding things from different sources. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're raising funding. So if someone wants to get involved and and support you and, and participate, what's the best way that they can they can do that? Uh, I've got a crowdfunding campaign running for that at the moment. Um, so yeah, they could donate to the crowdfunding campaign. If someone wants to purchase your book, is that something they can do? They can do that on your website and uh, on Amazon as well. They can, yeah, yeah. It's available from, uh, from, my, uh, from my book website, uh, which is imagesfromawarmingplanet.net. Um, you can uh, read the reviews of this mighty tome on there. Um, you can uh, scroll through about 100 pages of the book online so you can have a good look uh, at what's inside the book. Um, and, yeah, you can purchase a copy of the book um, from there and you'll be in really good company because I've been trying to get it to lots of influential people around the world. So currently uh, Pope Francis has got a, a copy, Al Gore has, Prince Charles, um, Chris Packham, Emmanuel Macron, Emma Thompson, people like that. Wow. I've been trying to get the book to. So uh, so if you if you purchase a copy, you'll be in good company. Excellent. <laughs> Clearly, um, and then you, you got a, a, a rave review from Jonathan Porritt as well. Yeah, Jonathan Porritt um, very kindly uh, wrote the foreword for the book, which I was utterly delighted with because, you know, he's kind of been an eco-hero of mine since since I was a young lad, really. Um, yeah, and he called the book, a, a, you know, an extraordinary a collection of images and a powerful call to action. So, uh, yeah. yeah, delighted with that. So you mentioned Jonathan Porritt is, uh, is your eco-hero. Is there anyone else that you would say is uh, your quote-unquote sustainability champion or someone who inspires you to, uh, to get up and, and really get going with, with the work you do? I think for me it is mainly the people um, that I've documented. They're the people that inspire me, the, the people who have nothing but are getting up and making, you know, making a difference. And those are the people that tend to really inspire me. So things like uh, the Munisiva Ashram, the people that run that, people like the Barefoot College, those for me are the real sustainability champions because they're out there, they're, you know, they're walking the walk. They're not just talking the talk. They're making life better um, for thousands of people across the planet. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's who, who I get my kind of power and strength from. And these are the people that motivate me to carry on doing what I'm doing. Excellent. And thank you very much for the work you are doing, Ash. And, um, really appreciate the time today. It's it fascinating to hear your adventures, your travels, what you've seen. Um, obviously some of it or a lot of it is not very, uh, is not very happy, but hopefully there are people who are inspired by the work that you're doing. Um, and who will be taking action. And clearly there are people who are taking action. So that's, uh, that's really great news. And uh, again, for anyone who's interested in, in actually buying the book or, or seeing the, the pages uh, inside, at the very least, you can go to imagesfromawarmingplanet.net and you can buy it directly there or you can look it up on Amazon and purchase it there. Um, Ash, thank you again so much for your time. Really great speaking with you today. Great, great to speak to you. Thanks very much, Daniel. 
Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.